Church, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have spoken to us through your word and the songs that we have sung to this point, God, and the testimonies given. We ask that as we turn now to your word, you would help us, Father, to fix our minds on that which is before us. Would you eliminate distraction? Lord, would you guard our wandering hearts and minds, Lord, in this time that ensues so that what we hear would be what you desire that we hear, Father, that we would grow in our understanding of the union into which you have brought us in Christ Jesus. Father, might we bring you glory in this time that follows, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the final chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 6. And verse 1, Galatians 6, 1. And depending upon the commentary you choose, the verses that we're going to read and consider this morning either address a new theme pertaining to the practical outworking of the Christian life, or they constitute the development of this theme, which began back in chapter 5, verse 13, where Paul turned his attention to his Galatian brothers and sisters called to be free, in, in which they weren't to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, they were to serve one another in love. Regardless of which perspective you take, new theme or continuation, what I believe we're going to see together this morning is Paul's practical theology. Paul's practical theology, where much of the first portion of this letter, as I'm sure you well remember, was theoretical in that it addressed the Galatians' failure to rest in the gospel, the gospel that Paul preached in which he'd maintained that no one is justified by observing the law but by faith in Jesus Christ because by observing the law, no one will be justified. And he then went on to demonstrate how this good news was first proclaimed to Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And thus, according to Paul, Israel's first great patriarch wasn't made right in God's eyes by his obedience. He didn't do anything to merit his place in God's family. Rather, he received God's promise by faith, believing that the God who'd made the promise would be faithful and would fulfill it. And he had. For as Paul has made clear, he sent who? Jesus. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us, the Gentiles, through Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Church, before this faith came, Paul tells us we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. And so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. You, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For we've been crucified with Christ. We no longer live the life that we live in the body. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Theory. But what does this look like practically speaking? Because we all love sound theory, I hope. Reasoning that's consistent, logical, cogent. But at the end of the day, if we're honest, we need to know what this thing is supposed to look like in practice. 
How do I live this thing out, right? And that's what I believe Paul addresses today in the text. If you have an NIV, you'll notice our text there is subtitled, Doing Good to All. The ESV offers a subtitle, Bear One Another's Burdens, both of which confirm the practical emphasis of what's to come in the text that you have now found, I hope. Galatians 6.1. So let me invite you to follow along as I read for us. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 1, the apostle writes, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And may God bless the public reading of His Word. As a question to start, there's a question to start. How many of you this morning were caught off guard by verse 1? Now we noted the section subtitled, Doing Good to All. And I mentioned the practical focus of this text, possibly even beginning back in chapter 5, verse 13, where Paul first urged his readers to serve one another in love for the entire law, as he said, is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. So how many this morning were surprised by verse 1's subject of sin. And there's no shame in admitting I was. When I think of doing good, doing good as verse 10 calls us to, I don't naturally connect that action to verse 1's exhortation to the spiritual to restore those caught in sin. Now my natural inclination to doing good or to response to doing good falls somewhere between Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and the parable of the Good Samaritan. I take the term good in the physical sense. And I, and I see the doing, then, as providing the physical things lacking in others' lives, which have resulted in bad, necessitating the doing of good. And because this is Christ's command, it's not merely a good to some, is it? It's a good to all, to those like me, who like me and who I like, along with those who would all fall into the enemy category. So it's a doing good to all. But isn't it telling how Paul's exhortation emphasizes the danger of sin and the responsibility of the church to address it? Paul doesn't give us a list as he begins with good things that we should do like help widows, feed the homeless, minister to prisoners, and provide for the foreigner who's in our midst. Rather, he warns the Galatians if somebody's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Paul's practical theology thus begins with a focus on restoring the sinner. 
And without explanation or even allusion to a known incident, I believe this emphasis on sin and its effect, particularly upon the church, reveals just how serious a subject this is. Meaning, the fact that Paul doesn't provide specific grounds for this concern reveals its universal application and relevance. And here's why. Whenever you address an issue, or whatever it is, with others, you always qualify it. Always providing some explanation as to the relevance that it has for them. Otherwise, confusion follows. For example, if I was to warn you this morning about the inerrant dangers of the new perspectives on Paul, New perspectives on Paul. Many here would respond, new perspectives? I, I didn't really know there were any. Besides, we like your brother. He's a nice guy. You know, new perspectives, old perspectives. I mean, we think the guy's pretty sound. He's your brother, right? Others might say, well, Paul, new perspectives? I mean, we, we like the guy. I mean, he's, he's getting up there in age, but he's got a lovely wife, Jill. I mean, new perspectives, old or new. We think he's a great guy. We think he ought to stay as a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Now, others would hear in this reference a theological controversy and its subtle but insidious undermining of the gospel. New perspectives on Paul. Point is, without qualification, such a warning as given would only cause confusion because we're not all familiar with it, are we? But if I were to warn you about the dangers of pornography, I wouldn't have any need for qualification, would I? Because said subject is universally known to destroy lives, to ruin relationships. And in the same way, I believe Paul doesn't inform the Galatians of a specific instance of sin because he doesn't need to. The destructive reality of sin and its offense against God was known to all the Galatians because he, does, he, he says it even there. Paul writes it back in chapter 4. They were no longer slaves to sin with minds blinded to the reality of the gospel. Because of the gospel, now they knew God. Rather, they were known specifically by God. They'd been crucified with Christ. They no longer lived, but who lived in them? Christ. So the Galatians knew all about sin because they'd been set free from it. And still, Paul warns them, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Clearly, sin continued to threaten the health of the church. And its danger was such that the apostle didn't address the sinner in regards to seeking resolution, did he? Because you notice where Paul placed the responsibility on restoration? It's on the you who are spiritual, isn't it? It's not the one caught in sin. And just here as a point of clarification, I don't believe that Paul is suggesting that there are different segments within the church, such as the spiritual, the super spiritual, the sort of spiritual, and then the barely spiritual. Paul isn't distinguishing categories within Christ's body as if you have worldly Christians and you have spiritual Christians. Because in his many other references to this concept, that of being spiritual, and we've seen several together to this point, if you were with us back in chapter 5, verse 18, there the spiritual, so-called, are led by the Spirit in Paul's words. Or later, same chapter, but verse 25, he refers to the spiritual as those who are living by the Spirit. And so in these examples, and a myriad of others, Paul is always describing every single Christ follower. Those who have received the Spirit who is from God, as Paul tells the church in Corinth. 
1 Corinthians 2.12. The Spirit who has a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto eternal life. Those who are God's possession. That's in Ephesians 1 verse 13. And so this warning, friends, and this responsibility isn't being given to a select few here this morning. It's being given to every single one of us. But do we take this responsibility seriously? You know, we consider the practical living out of our Christian faith. Where would you say this morning, where would you say sin features? Or more accurately, where would you say concern for sin features? Does it in our body? And if it does, how does it feature? And church, I would argue by the titles of the New York Times bestsellers list for religion, spirituality, and faith, I would argue by the titles of that list alone that sin, sin is not a concern in our country for at least the majority of our Christian population. We're the most, most read books. This is the top five, New York Times. Top five, address overcoming obstacles. That's in a work entitled Shaken. Finding joy in the face of suffering. That's according to a book titled The Book of Joy. Reprogramming your mind so that you can achieve new levels of achievement and purpose. That's in Think Better, Live Better. Soothing aching hearts and broken spirits for the broken way. And then moving from being burned out on busy to a life of grace, love, rest, and play in a book entitled Present Over Perfect. Those are the top five, or at least they're in the top ten. Now, I realize such superficial consideration may be grossly unfair to those books' content, the author's intent, but if nothing else, I believe it reveals the writer's hesitation to make open, open reference to sin in their titles, which I would argue is because they don't reference it at all. We're, we would rather focus on being positive, wouldn't we? Of thinking and being positive than on anything negative. We would rather worry ourselves with ourselves than be responsible for others because such a group concern it isn't only an invasion of others' privacy, but it's being judgmental, isn't it? We're not supposed to judge, not to mention the fact I've got enough to worry about than to add the worries of somebody else to my plate. Do those sentiments resonate this morning, church? Well, I believe that they certainly reflect the attitude for the majority in our culture. And yet I pray that they will not or don't have a home in our hearts because as Paul writes there in verse 2, we are to carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ where the burdens in this instance here in chapter 2 are grammatically tied to the sin that which some are caught in that's mentioned in verse 1. And so what I believe Paul is doing there in verse 1 is providing us with an example of how we fulfill the law of Christ. That's mentioned in verse 2. As we assist one another in dealing with the sin in our lives, which destroys fellowship, both with God and with one another. So we have a responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a responsibility here, as William Barclay observes. We also have an accountability. Because you notice who it is that the apostle spends the first five verses here in chapter 6 warning about what might happen to them in this situation of discovery and restoration. You notice who it is he's writing to? Is it the sinner or is it the one who is about to help in the process? And I'll answer that. It's the one who's helping, isn't it? 
Isn't that interesting? Despite the fact that Paul is addressing the restoration of sinners, his principal concern isn't for the sinner, per se. And why do you think that is? I believe the answer is tied to the nature of sin itself. As one pastor theologian notes, there is only one basic moral issue, and this is as it regards the subject of sin. There's only one basic moral issue that every human being faces, how to overcome the relentless urge of the human heart to assert itself against the authority and grace of God. And friends, I believe that Paul recognized in bearing one another's burdens, specifically taking the trouble of helping fellow Christ followers recognize their sin and have it addressed by the only one who can, it's Christ. I believe Paul recognized how we face in that action the temptation of pride. We battle the beast of self, which desires to set itself above all by means of comparison. It says, Paul writes there in verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he's not, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load, which I take to mean for each, that if, if we confront an erring Christian in pride or in arrogance, that we don't help at all because we fail to point those brothers or sisters towards the only one who can restore them. Our pride would set ourselves before these wayward friends as the example when the one that they need to see, in, indeed they must see, is who? Jesus. Emmanuel, do we appreciate the danger sin poses to our lives? And, and do we love enough to bear the burden of walking alongside brothers and sisters who are caught up in it? Because that's what defines such walking. Love. Just as it defines Christ's law, which we fulfill when we so walk. Where love is, as John recorded Jesus' words in, in chapter 14, verse 15. Love is obedience, as Jesus said. Obeying what I command. Whoever has my commands, Jesus said, and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And in this obedience that Christ is calling for or describing as the mark of one who is Love in love with him, we're not we're not called here, or we're not seeing ourselves relying on personal ability to accomplish these things, or are on the depth of our commitment. Because as Paul's already made clear, a man isn't justified by observing the law. It's not through obedience that we display our accomplishment of God's calling. Rather, what we do is we rest in Christ with whom we've been crucified. So we don't, long, we don't live any longer, but he is the one who lives in us. And as we do this, we know that Christ would never command us to do something that we are called to do by ourselves or in our own strength. Rather, he calls us to do that which we have to rely upon him to accomplish. Therefore, John Piper writes this, every command in the law of Christ is a call to faith. Through faith, God supplies the spirit of Christ. That's in chapter 5 and verse or 3, verse 5, here in Galatians. It's through the Spirit that we produce the fruit of love. We saw that last week, Galatians 5.22. Through love, we fulfill the law of Christ. That's today, chapter 6, verse 2. And therefore, if you trust Christ, you will fulfill His law of love. You will devote yourself to the lifting 
of the burdens of others. We will do this. But the question that follows is how, right? How? And I believe this is the essential question here, not only because this is Paul's letter's practical section, but because we need to know if we're to go about this. So, so how do we? And as regards the manner, Paul answers gently, as is evidenced in chapter or in verse 1's reference. You who are spiritual should restore him gently, where that action mirrors the Spirit's fruit of gentleness that's given us back in verse 22 of chapter 5, demonstrating, in my opinion, the Spirit's essential oversight of correct biblical church discipline. So the manner is to be gentle. Its purpose, restorative. But, but what about the steps? I mean, how do you get there? What does gentleness look like? And Paul doesn't provide us any here, does he? Which suggests to me that the concerns that he may have felt as regards the Galatians didn't relate to unrepentant or unresponsive Christians that were entrenched in their ways and therefore resistant to the gentle, loving rebuke that he called for. Paul doesn't give us any, but I don't think that we can leave ourselves at that. We need an answer. So as we seek specific direction as to how we may gently go about restoring a brother or a sister that we see has fallen into sin, we turn to Christ Jesus himself who gives us clear guidelines in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 18, he addressed his disciples, and there he declared, verse 15, if your brother or your sister sins against you, here we could add, if you come to know of a brother or sister who, as Paul has said, is caught in sin, but if your brother or sister sins against you or is caught in sin, go and show them their fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens or she listens, then you have won them over. In other words, you've been used of God to restore them. But if they won't listen, and there will be times when that's the case, unlikely here in Galatia, as we've noted, sadly all too frequent in the church today, but if they will not listen, he continues, take one or two along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And this command followed that of God's given through Moses in Deuteronomy, chapter 19 and verse 15, that one witness isn't enough to convict a person accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. It's a matter that must be established by the testimony, as Moses said, of two or three. So if they refuse to listen to those, Jesus continues, then you tell it to the church, and if they still refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Seems harsh doesn't it? And church, one of the reasons that I believe many churches today fail to practice this very expression of doing good to all, for that's what this is, it's because they fail to appreciate love as God has defined it. Just as they fail to appreciate sin and its offense against God. Why? Because they fail to appreciate God's holiness. For so many, for so many in our world, God is little more than their glorified self. And therefore, sin is only as offensive as they're ever made to feel by another's actions. And so for the many in our culture like that, God is simply an extension of humanity who can be appeased, maybe even one day surpassed as we continue to evolve as a race. But friends, this is not the God of the Bible. This is why Scripture must be where we come to know who God is, because this is not how God has revealed Himself. He isn't like His creation, 
that he could lie or change his mind. He is holy, and there's none like him. He is holy, and there he has no equal. Which is why, having focused on restoring the sinner, Paul then turns his attention to the urgency for the Galatians, the urgency of living this new life. As he writes in verse 7, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Where Paul's initial phrase there, don't be deceived, it's, it's simply a rhetorical device that's aimed at drawing attention to that which follows. So it's kind of like saying, mark my words, or make no mistake, and that which he doesn't want the Galatians mistaken of is this mocking or, or snubbing of their noses at God, which most commentators believe was a warning to these not to ignore the reality of sin and its effect on the judgment to come, which he then relates to us by reference in verse 7 in that concluding phrase, to the man who reaps what he sows. And in a society dominated by agriculture, which Paul's was, this use of sowing and reaping imagery was the natural way of conveying the idea of cause and effect. So as Paul does there when he says in verse 8, the one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And right off, this verse ought to pose problems for us, for those of us who've been reading. Because we know, we know who Paul is addressing, right? In this chapter, Galatian Christians. This is who Paul is addressing. We also know, as we saw, if you were with us last week in chapter 5, verse 22, or 24, that those who belong to Christ, Paul wrote, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So it would appear at this point, per Paul's logic to this place, that Christians have crucified the sinful nature. Therefore, the one who is sowing to please his sinful nature he must be an unbeliever, correct? While the one who sows to please the Spirit and from the Spirit will reap eternal life, he must be a believer, must be. But, but if this is so, then we need to ask, why does Paul include a reference now to unbelievers without explicitly stating that they are unbelievers? And some might argue for an evangelistic motivation. So if the church might sow the gospel so that at the proper time as he continues, we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. However, that view introduces a subject that has yet to be addressed in this text, namely unbelievers. Because if you remember, look back in verse 1, Paul begins, brothers, if someone, if someone, meaning the one, someone who belongs to the family of believers as Paul has described the church in verse 10, if someone is caught in a sin, so this isn't talking about an unbeliever, is it? He's talking about believers. Nor, later on, can the anyone mentioned in verse 6 be interpreted faithfully as a reference to unbelievers because it calls for them to share all good things with those who instruct them in the Word, meaning the Scriptures. And so again, the anyone that's referenced is to the believer. Again, the believer. Further, the ones... There in verse 8, the ones, as in the one who sows to please his sinful nature, and the one who sows to please the Spirit. These ones, so-called, are linked to verse 9's, let us not become weary. So the ones are the same as the us, 
meaning Paul is addressing, again, believers. And this is problematic. Because as verse 8 reads, the one, let's just, let's just say Christian now for clarity, the Christian who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. This would seem to suggest that a Christian, if he sows to please his sinful nature, won't receive what he otherwise would have, namely eternal life, had he sown to the Spirit. At which point, if you're tracking, if you're following the argument now, we might wonder, and rightly so, well, does this mean that Paul believes that a Christian could lose their salvation? And I'll answer that question with an unequivocal no, 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 because Paul writes elsewhere to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you, church, believers, followers of Christ. I always pray with joy for your partnership in the gospel from the first time until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to when? To completion on the day of Christ Jesus. No question. Then again, this time when he was writing to the church in Ephesus, chapter 1, verse 13, Paul declared, and you, again, brothers and sisters in Christ, followers of Jesus, you were also included in Christ when you heard the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, a deposit, the promised Holy Spirit, a guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So Paul isn't suggesting that a true Christ follower could lose their salvation. But this necessarily leads us to the question, well then, of what is he warning the Galatians? Of what is Paul warning the Galatians? And I believe the answer is tied to this often confusing relationship that we struggle with within the church that exists between faith and works. As we know, and as we've seen, if you've been with us in this journey through Galatians, we've seen Paul vehemently oppose his agitator's pseudo-gospel, which urged the Galatians to work out their salvation by independent adherence to the law, meaning their claim that following salvation by faith in Jesus, the believer now secured that faith and grew in that faith by obeying God's law. Paul rejects that lie outright. At the same time, he doesn't reject the law, does he? Because he says in chapter 3, the law isn't bad. The law that God gave it wasn't opposed to the promises of God. The problem with the law wasn't the law itself. The problem was its recipients, us. We're messed up. And the law simply revealed just how badly messed up we were. So Christ came and fulfilled the law for us so that we might be justified by faith in Christ. He set us free from the law's demands on our sin-weakened flesh by filling us with his spirit who now empowers us to Christ-celebrating, exalting, and loving works of obedience where these works now aren't being performed in our strength or for God's favor but rather, as Paul expressed it in chapter 5, verse 6, they're being performed as faith expressing itself through love. So that's the work without which James informs us faith is dead. And so what this means then is, as one commentator, Douglas Moo, writes, human works that please the Spirit 
are indeed necessary for final salvation. And the very fact that Paul sets forth two options before his readers makes clear that he doesn't assume all those who he's addressing will necessarily produce those works. But as we've seen together, Paul's teaching elsewhere in this letter justifies our claiming that these works are the effect of faith. And they're produced in and through the Spirit. And church, I want to be very, very clear on this point. Because if your mind's been elsewhere and you haven't been tracking with us and you've just now re-entered the conversation, then you might be tempted to leave today and say, well, I heard my pastor say that works are essential to salvation. That's not what I'm saying at all. That is not what I'm saying. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Where the faith by which we are saved is as the reformer John Calvin himself once said in his institute. It is not our doctrine, Calvin wrote, that the faith which justifies or makes us right in standing before God, it is not our doctrine that the faith which justifies is alone. We maintain it is invariably accompanied by good works. Only we contend that faith alone is sufficient for justification. We don't do good works and have faith, therefore we are saved. We have faith and faith only. But faith, if it is true faith, will evidence itself in works of obedience. Friends, if you are alive in Christ in this time, we're living in a unique day. We're living in a time between Christ's two appearances during which we continue, if you're living and breathing, we continue to be affected by our flesh. That's our, our rootedness by virtue of being fallen human beings. That's our rootedness, so to speak, in the things of this world. So it is that we must, by God's enabling, Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in us to will and to act according to His good purpose. Do we perform these works by our own strength and volition? Absolutely not. But do we employ our strength and volition in the performance of these acts? You bet we do. You bet we do because we know, as Paul has said, at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. We're not mere passive participants in this thing. We do engage. And therefore, as he says, we have opportunity. And as we have this opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've been battling to find purpose in your life, if the uncertainty of tomorrow and the, the struggle for, for, for fulfillment has eluded you to this point, it might be that you've been placing self and worshiping self over that which alone will satisfy, who is Jesus. You've been caught, as Paul has said, in, in sin, where you've been living for your renown, your glory. You've been sowing, to use the agrarian analogy, seeds that you hope will grow such that those who see them will praise you and not the only one who is worthy of praise, who is God himself. Friend, if this is you this morning, I pray that you would confess your sin and ask for forgiveness from the one against whom your sin has been committed. But then church, for ourselves, 
Are you aware of a brother or sister that is battling with sin? Or maybe it's yourself struggling with sin, who, who, who needs a sister or a brother to come alongside her. Are you in that moment actively working to restore, be restored gently? Or are we choosing to ignore it? Guys, may we not allow our adversary to blind us to the significance of sin and the danger it presents if left unaddressed. Achan, in the Old Testament, sinned. Achan alone, his entire nation, was impacted by the effects of his sin. If we desire, church, for God to continue to use us, that we be instruments in a master's hand, then we have to appreciate that the scriptures make clear if we hide sin in our heart, our prayers hit a wall because God is determined not to listen to us. Sin breaks fellowship with God, rightly so, because God is holy. It's not like my feelings that get hurt when you say something that's mean. It's not like our, our emotions that, that begin to unravel when someone does something to us. God is holy. Our sin's offense we, we can't fully grasp unless we look at the cross and we see the price that Jesus paid to set us free from it. I hope and pray that as we encounter sin in our lives or in one another's lives, that we'll love enough to emulate Christ who while we were still sinners died so that we could be set free. Would you pray with me, church, as we close? Father, you are a God that sets us free. But the price of that freedom was Christ's life. Father, and we can so flippantly talk about the cross and the crucifixion and fail to feel the weight of our sin's offense. Father, and we, as we are so prone to do, we compare ourselves to others who are also struggling. And we give ourselves the impression that we're not that bad. That sin's not that big of a deal. Because we fail to look to your word, to come to know you as you have revealed yourself. Father, would you give us a glimpse of your holiness, of the responsibility that you have placed upon us of living in light of that holiness? loving enough that we care for each other when we're struggling with that which breaks relationship with you. Father, to see that what matters for eternity is all that matters. Who cares of 30 or 40 years of success, financial and relational, when we have eternity before us? an eternity that you have placed within our hearts, God, that will be spent either in your presence, worshiping you, or separated in hell. God, you have given us the gospel. Lord, and as we come to appreciate that gospel, it begins with conviction of sin. 
that Christ, you went to the cross for me. Your horrific death was the price sin, my sin, demanded. Father, may we not take sin lightly. May we recognize our ongoing proclivity to it as Paul warned the Galatians. Father, may we be so warned today. And might we love one another enough to come alongside and to bear each other's burdens for we each have them, God. Would you keep us from the arrogance that would see ourselves as being able to pull this thing off on our own. God, there is not a one of us who can do that. Only Christ. Lord, might we live so that you are glorified as we love each other as you've loved us first. And so, as Paul said, fulfill the law that you have given us. God, we pray these things together as your family. In Jesus' name, amen.